Um, kia ora CBC. Uh, I'll be reading from Ruth 2 today if you want to read along. Um, and I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Now, there was a wealthy and influential man in Bethlehem named Boaz, who was a relative of Naomi's husband, Elimelech. One day, Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go out into the harvest fields to pick up the stalks of grain left behind by anyone who is kind enough to let me do it. Naomi replied, All right, my daughter, go ahead. So Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. While she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. Then Boaz asked his foreman, who is that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, She is the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She has been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. Boaz went over and said to Ruth, Listen, my daughter, stay right here with us when you go gather grain. Don't go to any other fields. Stay right behind the young woman working in my field. See which part of the field they are harvesting and then follow them. I have warned the young men not to treat you roughly. And when you are thirsty, help yourself to the water they have drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. But I also know everything you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you have done. I hope I continue to please you, sir, she replied. You have comforted me by speaking so kindly to me, even though I am not one of your workers. At mealtime, Boaz called to her. Come over here and help yourself to some of the food. You can dip your bread in the sour wine. So she sat with his harvesters, and Boaz gave her some roasted grain to eat. She ate all she wanted and still had some left over. When Ruth went back to work again, Boaz ordered his young men, let her gather grain among the young sheaves without stopping her, and pull out some heads of barley from the bundles and drop them on purpose for her. Let her pick them up and don't give her a hard time. So Ruth gathered barley there all day, and when she beat out the grain that evening, it filled an entire basket. She carried it back into town and showed it to her mother-in-law. Ruth also gave her the roasted grain that was left over from the meal. Where did you gather all this grain today, Naomi asked. Where did you work? May the Lord bless the one who helped you. So Ruth told her mother-in-law about the man in whose field she had worked. She said, The man I worked with today is named Boaz. May the Lord bless him, Naomi told her daughter-in-law. He is showing his kindness to us as well as to your dead husband. That man is one of our closest relatives, one of our family redeemers. Then Ruth said, What's more, Boaz even told me to come back and stay with his harvesters until the entire harvest is completed. Good, Naomi exclaimed. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with his young woman right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in the other fields, but you'll be safe with him. So Ruth worked alongside the woman in Boaz's fields and gathered grain with them until the end of the barley harvest. Then she continued working with them through the wheat harvest in early summer. And all the while, she lived with her mother-in-law. That's all good. I got this one. Thanks, Mahalia. Super good reading. Love it. Love it. How good is it to, to just like read a big chunk of scripture like that? You guys enjoying that? It's something that we've kind of like been doing. We've carried on basically since like COVID. We were reading big chunks of scripture. Scripture, not scripture. 
scripture. Um, but yeah, who's enjoying being able to like, just kind of like sit in the text and be like, okay, so this is what's going on sort of thing. Because I've got to admit, getting up here and then trying to like read it all sort of thing and not feel like you've like missed bits out and that kind of thing can be a little bit like daunting. And so for us to be able to just like sit in the text and be like, you know what, Lord, we trust, um, as you've said, that this is your word and um, we're going to let you speak to us sort of thing. And so in a way, I like that time to be just where the Lord just kind of like reveals certain things to us. And so I just really encourage you that as we read these, um, these passages of Scripture, to just be going, like, ident- like, paying attention to what leaps out to you, what stands out sort of thing. And just really just take that as a time to uh, be like, Lord, are you prompting something in me there? Are you stirring something in me there? Uh, so yeah, anyway, I just realized I jumped up and said, no, good morning this morning. So good morning, everybody. Uh, sorry about that. Sorry, I was just like too excited about uh, Mahalia's reading. It was super good. Um, hey, so uh, we are carrying on in our Ruth series, if you haven't uh, gathered that already from our reading this morning. Uh, and uh, for those of you who are joining us on podcast, just so you know, we've just read Ruth chapter 2. Um, so maybe pause the podcast, uh, give it a read, uh, and then come back to us um, but for the rest of you, so good to see your faces. It feels like forever since I've been up here seeing you all uh, in terms of like the teaching context. So I'm really looking forward uh, to what the Lord has for us this morning. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, Craig was talking about uh, a wedding yesterday, and that was my sister-in-law. Uh, and so the last few days have been a little bit mad, and the sleep has been well, a little bit as well, but just not mad, just a little bit, okay? There hasn't been a whole lot of sleep. So if you um, notice me nodding off at all, just like start clapping, you know, something like that, and, and uh, yeah, or pray for me. That'd be good too. Awesome. Hey, so uh, we're going to just do a quick dive into just a little bit of context around uh, Ruth chapter 2. But to do that, we also kind of like need to lean into chapter one just a little bit, real briefly, nothing uh, in depth. Uh, And so chapter two begins with Naomi. Where is Naomi at this point? Back back in Bethlehem, back in the promised land, okay? So in Ruth chapter one, uh, we... uh, we, we heard about, um, and Tina did an amazing job last week in terms of just leading us through some teaching around this, that in chapter one, Naomi with her uh, husband Elimelech and their two sons headed off to, uh, uh, well, out of the promised land and to Moab because there was a famine going on. And so they settle in Moab um, with, uh, like, as a family, and the two sons marry Moabite women, right? Um, now, this might seem like a reasonable thing to do because they were leaving the promised land because of a... Famine, yep, awesome. Uh, and so they were settling in Moab because they were like, you know what, there's n- really no food to eat here at all, so we're going to go like, uh, go buy a house like somewhere else kind of thing. And so they do that, and it seems like a reasonable thing to do, um, but uh, there is some context that's just really important to note here. Uh, the people of Israel and the Moabites, they didn't have the best relationship. Um, to say the least. Uh, And so I just want to bring out a few things um, that kind of influence the relationship between like the Moabites and the Israelites. Uh, And Moab, to like put it a nice way, wasn't really known for like good things. Uh, You know, how kind of like Hamilton's got a bit of a, a rap, you know, like with people from other parts of the country, you know, where you're like, they're like, where are you from? And it's just like, oh, I'm from Hamilton. And they're generally like, oh, I'm sorry, kind of thing. Don't understand it, eh? Like, who loves living in Hamilton? Who loves, yeah? Yeah, sweet. So if you don't live in Hamilton and you're listening on the podcast, come and move here because it's a great city and God is doing good things. Um, Anyway, Moab is nothing like Hamilton, okay? Like, Moab is genuinely, like, known for really nothing good, okay? In fact, they're known for kind of everything bad. And so uh, we've got a slide that's just going to come up. And these are just some of the things that made their relationship between Israel 
and Moab tents and kind of like some of the stuff that had gone down in history. So the first thing is that the Moabites had originated out of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his older daughter. You can read about that in Genesis 19. Um, Their king Balak had hired Balaam uh, to curse Israel when they came out of Egypt. And you can read about that in Numbers. So you can already see that there's some bad, like, rap between the two. Like, they're not, like, seen eye to eye here. Um, in fact, they're going as far as cursing, or the Moabites are going as far as cursing Israel. The, the third one would be that their woman had been, like, a stumbling block to Israel. Um, and they were constantly, um, and you read all about this in Numbers 20, uh, yeah, Numbers chapter 25 in particular, they're seducing them to worship false gods. And so, like, Israel has, like, come out of Egypt, and they're doing, like, this, like, gnarly, like, journey through the wilderness, and then uh, they uh, constantly kind of rubbing shoulders with the, the people um, of Moab, uh, all the Moabites. And the ladies in particular seem to have like some seducing powers, funnily enough, uh, and they're encouraging them to worship false gods. And then finally, and this is just quite recent, this is just the, the, the one of the books just before uh, yeah, Judges, uh, that they had recently oppressed the Israelites in the days of Eglong. Anybody named Eglong here? No? No? Is it, a, is it kind of like a name that's kind of up and coming, do you think? Eglong? Come, Eglong. Let us dine together. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so uh, to say the least, it wasn't great. These are just a couple of things that had kind of caused tension between uh, the Moabites and the, Israelite, uh, the Israelites. Um, so anyway, while living in Moab, tragedy struck. And then we heard about this uh, last week. Uh, and Naomi's husband and her two sons, uh, they die, uh, leaving her and her two daughters-in-law without any form of security. And uh, you've got to understand that uh, in the ancient Near Eastern times and culture, that uh, to be like a woman uh, is to be inferior. Um, and to not be a married woman uh, and living especially outside of or away from family, there is zero security and zero safety going on, okay? And so this is a, this is a big, big deal for Naomi uh, and her now two daughters-in-law because their husbands and Naomi's sons have passed away. And so due to circumstances... Um, Naomi is practically forced to return to Israel. She's forced to return to Israel. But Ruth, now Ruth we heard a bit about last week as well. Uh, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, chooses to go uh, with her and even pledges her life to Naomi and to Naomi's God, the God of Israel. Now, it's really important, again, this is a quick side note, to notice the pledge between, um, from Ruth to Naomi, okay? Now, this is like, in terms of the language she's using, this is a, like a covenantal pledge. This is, this is a big deal in terms of what she is saying here. Because not only is she saying, like, your people will be my people, She's saying, your land will be my land. Now, again, in ancient Near Eastern culture, um, the, there was, uh, uh, basically, they had this idea, this belief, that land or geography was intrinsically linked to the God that you served. So not only is she saying that your people will be my people, she's saying your land will be my land, so she's stepping it up a notch every time the stakes are going up here. And then eventually, she says, and your God will be my God. So she is actively and willingly stepping out of the covering or protection of her gods or the gods of the Moabites and stepping into a covenant relationship and kind of like under the protection of the God of Israel. So this is a pretty amazing pledge that she makes to Naomi. And so you've got Naomi who is forced to return to Israel and then you've got Ruth who chooses to return Oh, not return, to go for the first time to a land that she had not known as a foreigner. Um, so Naomi went after what seemed good. And this is what we read about in chapter 1. Naomi went after what seemed good. She was chasing security and significance. Uh, Israel at that time was in famine, and they were struggling. Um, she was, uh, in her own words, she says this, she left with her bags full. She left full. She had a husband and she had her two sons. She left for greener pastures, but in doing so, she also stepped outside of God's promised land. 
She left for greener pastures, but she stepped outside of God's promised land. And now she was returning again, in her own words, empty. But, but it was in her emptiness that she experiences the abundance and goodness of the God of Israel. And so, yes, Naomi has stepped out of Israel. She went on a bit of a, a wild ride. She went where they had, uh, as like the people of Israel, actually they'd been forbidden to do this. And so she actively, in disobedience, goes and does this. She goes and goes, you know what, God, you're not covering things for me. You know, land of famine, we're not being able to provide for ourselves, so we're going to go with the pastures are greener, and we're going to go there, and we're going to seek out our own security and our own significance. So this is some pretty big calls, okay? Ruth, on the other hand, Ruth uh, has lost everything also, right? She's lost her husband, Naomi's son. She's lost any form of security, and significance, uh, but at the same time, she was turning her back intentionally on that security and significance in stepping into the promised land. She was a foreigner. And back then, you know, like we've got like a globalized world where you can get visas and you can move around the well, you used to be able to move the, around the world relatively easily. Um, but you used to be able to go places, you know what? And apart from like a little bit of like occasional rudeness from somebody, you know, you're generally welcome in, in, in most parts of the world. It was not the case uh, here or back in the day. To be a foreigner in another land was a big, big deal. Again, because of this intrinsic belief that your God is geographically located. In that. And so if you're in another land, who can't you connect to? Your God. So it's a big deal. And, that, and for them, back then, everything's spiritual. There was no such thing as an atheist back in the day. And that because everything had to do with the gods. And so can you kind of see like the, the level of both what Naomi did in leaving the promised land and what Ruth was doing in, in terms of following Naomi back to the promised land? These are two very different paths, but they are big deals nonetheless. Does that make sense, guys? Yep, yep awesome, cool. So a quick question, um, just so that we can all get talking and getting the juices flying. Uh, the question is this. What is a time in your life when the grass looked greener somewhere else? We talked about how Naomi went after greener pastures. And so I'm not necessarily saying, like, when did you guys go to Moab, okay? That's not what I'm asking. I'm just saying, in a time in life, when have you seen, like, a greener field somewhere else? And did you, did you go to them? Did you go after them? Or did you decide to stay put? And, like, kind of what drove that decision? So we'll spend a couple of minutes just chatting uh, amongst ourselves. So if you're by yourself and you're not really that keen on this kind of conversation, just, like, read your Bible and or pray or something like that, and we'll leave you alone. But otherwise, let's just spend a couple of minutes just talking about, okay, greener fields. Have you seen, uh, has there been a time in your life uh, where you've seen them? And did you go after them? And if not, why did you stay put? Is that cool? Yeah? Come on, guys. Is that cool? Okay, sweet. All right, sweet. Let's do that. All right. So that, for the first time ever, kind of like went naturally quiet by itself. So that was a bit of a weird situation that just happened. You guys normally, we can't, like, encourage you enough to be quiet. Uh, so uh, was there any, like, like, real good stories from anybody here? I mean, you don't have to share them. You can just be like, yeah, we had like some good examples of greener fields and that kind of thing. Yeah? Any farmers here going, yeah, oh, man, I'm always looking for greener pastures. What are you on about? Like, of course you go where the grass is greener. <laughs> yeah. Anybody bought another farm next door to them because their farm didn't look so good? No? All right, sweet, just me. Nah, jokes. Yeah, yeah, apparently I own farms now. So anyway, carrying on. Uh, and so uh, Naomi and Ruth, okay, so this is now chapter two. This is where we are at, okay? Uh, so Naomi and Ruth are now empty-handed. They're now empty-handed and in the promised land, but for two very different reasons. Naomi, because of what she had lost. Ruth, because of what she did not yet have. 
Can you see the difference between the two? There's like actually stark contrast between these two. Naomi, because of what she'd lost. She was back there because she had no other choice and no other reason, basically. Ruth, on the other hand, there's like this step of faith that she takes, and it's because of what she does not yet have. And so that's what we want to plug into this morning. That's the story we want to tap into and go, okay, what was driving Ruth to do that, to make such a major step? and to put herself under the protection of the God of Israel. And the beautiful thing about this is that even just in this chapter alone, we're not even talking about the the rest of Ruth, uh, chapters 3 and 4. In this chapter alone, God meets them both where they are at, both where they're at. Naomi is somebody who's really struggling that she's back in the land. She's kind of bitter about it, and she is struggling. Um, And Ruth, because she's also lost everything, and she's just kind of like, well, What do I got to lose? And she has actively taken this decision to step into the promised land. And so God meets them both where they're at and shows them just how truly good and generous he is. And so we're picking up the story, um, and Ruth has headed out into the fields. This is what Mahalia was reading just before, uh, to pick up stalks of grain that had been left behind. Now, again, we've got to do a bit of context because it's just like, what is this even about? Like, why are you in the fields picking up leftover stalks of grain? This is a weird thing to do. But this is actually something written into the law that was given by God for the people of Israel. And you can read more about that in um, Leviticus chapter 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 24. And he did it for this, so that the poor and the widowed and the outcast could be provided for. So we're already starting to, when we understand that, get a picture of God's good and generous heart. That for Naomi and Ruth to have stayed in Moab, there was no support structure. Family was it. Whereas Israel had been given a law by God to say, you know what? You are to care for the poor. You are to care for the widowed. You are to care for the outcast. You are to care for the foreigner. They are to be welcome in your land, and this is how you do it. Um, And so those that had land and crops, uh, there was a couple of things they were not allowed to do. So we're talking about the landowners here and the farmers here. Uh, They were not allowed to harvest the crops to the edge of the field or into the corners of the field. Uh, You... Do you guys ever see like when there's like cropping happening, happening and you see the like the big like harvesters coming through and they can like they've got to swing around the corner, you know, and they can't actually drive like into the corner unless they back up. And they always leave that like that corner piece just because it's like ultimately uneconomical to try like back into there, get that little bit of grain or like maize or whatever it is, and then like carry on. Do you guys ever notice that that in fields there are these these pockets? So in a way, I'm just giving you guys a picture, okay? So in a way, that's what it's kind of like. You've got these pockets of grain, pockets of whatever, sitting in the corners, where not because they can't back their harvesters into the corner and it's uneconomical to even try to do that, it's because God has said, care for those who cannot care for themselves. And so God's heart is being expressed here, and that all are welcome in the promised land. It's like this really beautiful thing that's going on. And it takes it up a notch. If they left anything behind, okay, so as they're harvesting, sort of thing, and they're bundling up their, their sheaves, sheaves? Yep, sheaves of grain. And if they left any behind, they're not allowed to go back and get it. More than that, if they, for some, like, whatever reason, accidentally leave their crops in the field after like harvesting like and they've got a whole lot of like piles of sheaves in there they're not allowed to go back the next day and get it because they go what that that is for those who cannot provide for themselves and so those who have no way provide, to provide for themselves would be still able to go out to gather food for themselves and have a means for living it doesn't just like, it's not just like, here, like, here's some food. It's actually empowering them at the same time. It's like, here, here's some work, you know, like, here's some, like, uh, here is a reason to get up. Here is a, a meaning to life. You can actually get up and be provided for. Now, was it like, a, a, like an abundance harvest that they were gathering? Nah, not really. But at the same time, there was still this expectation that, as the people of God, they were to care for those who could not care for themselves. And I just love how God expresses his heart in such a simple and yet practical way. Do you guys think so? 
Yeah, I think it's cool. It's really cool. And so we have a series of events that the writer of Ruth draws our attention to. Not only is there this system to play, uh, in place to support the poor and the widowed um, that was given by God, but there is this series of divine appointments that shows that God is personally involved in and invested in uh, both Naomi and Ruth's lives and story. And we can read that in verse 3. This is what it says. And, uh, as, it, oh, and as it happened, she found herself working in a field. Uh, that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. Now, when we read that, it kind of sounds like it was just like, oh, and she just so happened to be in Boaz's field, like she somehow maybe learned that this was a family member or that kind of thing. Now, if we were to take that, and as it happened, like from the Hebrew, we would kind of roughly translate it as um, something along the lines of, and as luck may, oh, as luck had it, or what's that saying? Huh? Coincidentally, yeah, but it's more, it's, more like, it's more like based on luck sort of thing. But the writer here is saying that not because it just so happened to be the case, but that there is this, like, this poetic nature to the writing where he's, he's kind of like drawing the irony out. He's saying, this had nothing to do with luck. And this had nothing to do with the, oh, and it just so happened that she ended up in this field, but that there is a divine appointment going on and that she was in that field for a very particular reason. And so the writer is drawing this out. Uh, now, who is this guy, Boaz? Does he sound pretty cool? Come on, does he sound pretty cool? I mean, the name's pretty cool. Uh, I don't know why I'm focusing on names at the moment. It's, it's a bit of a weird one, eh? So odd. Um, anyway, uh, well, we all, um, we all know that he's related to Ruth. <laughs> yep, we know that he's related to Ruth, uh, which makes him, a, what, we, what we read, a family redeemer or a kingsman redeemer. But what is that? Okay, again, a bit of context. It's important to the story. So a kingsman redeemer, or a family redeemer, and I think it's going to come up. Yep, cool. Um, was obliged to buy back his relatives if they had fell into debt, and they had to sell, them, sell themselves into slavery. Again, very different culture, ancient Near East culture. We're looking at this and going, man, this is a hostile place. People are selling themselves into, into debt. I mean, in a way, we're kind of doing that still this, to the, these days, but in very different ways, like we're getting ourselves into debt and selling ourselves in a way into slavery. Um, but that's a whole other sermon that Craig is going to preach, apparently. Um, and uh, we can read about that in Leviticus chapter 25. Now, under, circumstance, uh, under certain circumstances, the kingsman redeemer also had an obligation to marry the widow and raise up a child for a brother who had died, died childless. And that's in Deuteronomy chapter 25. I'm not making that up. Um, and so this, again, was God's way of saying, you know what, you need to care for the people who cannot care for themselves. And I know the marriage thing is like kind of out of the out of this world for us. Like this is like seriously I'm marrying somebody else now because my brother had died, but what is really being expressed here is that like God's heart because back then lineage mattered, inheritance mattered, and God's slowly but effectively kind of like changing all of that. But at the same time, he's meeting people where they're at and going, okay, so if inheritance matters, okay, if marriage matters, then I'm going to set you up with a system so that your bloodline will continue. It's pretty cool. And that's what God is doing here. And so anyway, in this way, the inheritance would continue to be associated with the name of the man who had died. Family names are carrying on. Um, but the thing is, Ruth was a Moabite. And we hear that she has even identified as a foreigner because she says, who are you to treat me like this, a foreigner, when she was talking to Boaz? Um, her marriage wouldn't have been considered legal or official in the land of Israel. Now, this is some interesting stuff. So, therefore, Boaz had no obligation to follow through on this whole kinsman redeemer or family redeemer business. He had no obligation. There was a bunch of loops that he could have used as an excuse to not go through with caring for Ruth in the way that he goes and cares for her. But Boaz isn't just concerned about his obligation to the law. His heart had been touched by God. And unlike so many people 
like during this time, he wasn't uh, concerned about making like ends meet just for himself. He was concerned about God's concerns. And as a result of that, he was able to see Ruth. Notice, who did, he's the only person, really, that we, we read in the story who keeps seeing Ruth. He sees her. He sees her. The foreigner in the field, he sees her and goes, who is she? He inquires after her, and then he goes beyond that to go and have a conversation with her. So anyway, um, Boaz isn't just concerned about his obligation to the law. His heart has been touched by God and his covenant faithfulness to him. Boaz is a man of God. And because of Boaz's heart, uh, because of this, Boaz's heart has overflowed in gratitude, and that has enabled him to see what God sees, those that are around him, especially those in need. And so Ruth is now out in Boaz's field, and he spots her, like we were talking about, and approaches her and speaks kindly to her and blesses her. Again, do you notice how, like, these actions are kind of like the stakes are increased each time? Notices, approaches, speaks kindly, and blesses. And just like Ruth has pledged to Naomi and up the stakes each time she does so, you see God's heart being expressed through Boaz, and you see this increase that, yes, you're a foreigner, but you're not a foreigner to me. I see you. I'm approaching you. I'm speaking kindly to you. And I will even bless you as a foreigner in this land. How cool is that? It's a beautiful, beautiful picture that we get. So Boaz can see her, but he can also see the level of faith that she has. Because what Ruth has done is no simple task. It is no simple task. Notice that Boaz, um, uh, there is even the conversation uh, from Naomi and Boaz saying, hey, stay in this field because you're potentially going to get hassled in other fields. And so basically what we, we're gathering from that and what most scholars would say is that even though this was the law given to Israel, it did not mean that all the landowners and the farmers and that kind of thing were respecting this law. And so that uh, a lot of people were actually abused, a lot of the poor, a lot of the widowed, a lot of the needy were actually abused in trying to carry through their rights within the promised land. And so that's something that we can pick up from the story. But Ruth, she has an amazing faith, and not just an amazing faith, a faith that she practices. She participated in what God was doing, and she didn't just sit around and wait for things to happen. Notice that. She didn't just show up to the promised land and then sit on the couch with Naomi and Bethlehem and be like, well, now what? That wasn't her approach at all. She said to Naomi, let me go out into the fields, and if somebody's kind enough, maybe I can scrape together a living for us too. That's, that, that's big faith, because notice she's the foreigner. And there is no reason that Naomi couldn't be going out into the fields and doing this. We know of no disability. She would have been roughly around 50 at this point. And yes, this is hard work, but Naomi is stuck. She is bitter. She doesn't want to be back in the promised land. And yet we see Ruth in great faith saying, it's all good. I pledged myself to you. I will look after you. And I'm trusting that the God, your God, who's now my God, will look after me. And I'm going to go out and I'm going to find somebody kind enough to let me gather scraps in their field. This is, this is beautiful. This is so good. Um, anyway. <laughs> Ruth, um, Ruth didn't go back home in the pursuit of security and significance. She didn't abandon Naomi. Instead, she put her faith and trust in the God of Israel. And as a result, she didn't just find refuge, but experienced his abundance as she came under his cover and care through the goodness of Boaz. Now, quick side story. We have a cat called Kokeko. She is a beautiful cat. She's Japanese, and we love her to bits. Um, 
Now, Kukeko is a brilliant cat. She's a smart cat. She's an oriental. And so, you know, we've taught her, like, a few cool tricks. But then she's taught herself, like, way more. Um, and we have this little joke in our house where uh, Keko positions herself for blessing. <laughs> she does this little thing where she's now picked up on the... the I don't know if you guys have any pets that... Uh, are as amazing as my cat, um, but uh, she's picked up on the sound of the plate being scraped. Now, she in particular loves ice cream, okay, just like a dad, um, and so I'll have my bowl of ice cream at the end of the, of the night, and then she hears the scraping, and she, she will come from anywhere. She could be like 20 streets up the road sort of thing, and she literally comes flying through the front door, rip-roaring, and she just there she is. Now, if she can't get in the door, she knows there's one window that if we're in the lounge, we'll always be able to see her from. It doesn't matter like where we're sitting in the lounge or if we're in the kitchen, we can see this one window. And there's this little wood box that sits outside there. And the next thing we know, <laughs> there she is. She's standing on her back legs and she's just like, here I am. She's positioning herself for blessing. And we, like, it's something that we joke about kind of thing. But this is what we see in Ruth as well. She, she has great faith, this woman, and she is positioning herself for blessing. And now, this is a bit of a weird thing, especially like, and, and, and so don't get me wrong, this is not about like prosperity gospel or anything like that, but we do, like we are in relationship with a good God. Psalm, uh, Psalm 23 talks about, he is our good shepherd and in him we lack nothing. Ephesians 1 says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And it says that while we were far from him, while we were his enemies, he drew near. And if any of us draws near, he promises to respond and abide in us as we abide in him. And we experience his abundance and his goodness. And so I'm not talking necessarily about like, like possessions or like finances or anything like that. I'm talking about a good God who longs to give us, just as Jesus said, life to the fullest, life in abundance. And it's not about it being easy. It's not about all of a sudden I have no problems and I'm a million dollars richer. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about are souls that are deeply centered and abiding in the person of Jesus, experiencing his love and grace and peace like we've never before. And we can experience that now. That's not a heaven reality. That is a now reality. And that's a part of what I believe the coming of the kingdom of God is about. We limit ourselves to this thought of, yay, heaven. You know, like, oh, like, it'll be nice to experience God then. Why do we limit ourselves in that way? Why not position ourselves for blessing so that we can experience the goodness and abundance of God now? Now. So that our souls can be at peace in a tumultuous world. And it's going crazy. <laughs> but we don't need to be going crazy. Because we are deeply centered and anchored to the one who is above all things, who is over all things, and his name is King Jesus. And this is a bit of a preach, and I was just going to be a side note about Kukako, but <sighs> family in Ruth, we see herself position herself for blessing. She doesn't sit around. She steps out in faith, and we see God richly bless her. Yes, with like a way of living, like eating the next day, but I think so much more than that, Ruth is drawn into the lineage of David. And the lineage of David is the same line as Jesus. She is drawn into that same line. Not because of anything. And again, it's not because of what she's doing. It's because of who she's trusting. She's coming under his covering. She's covenanted, covenanted herself to him. And she experiences his blessing and his goodness and his abundance as the good shepherd who lacks no thing. Yeah. Thank you, Keko. Yeah. <laughs> so, Boaz provides for her um, and Naomi far beyond what he is obliged to do. Like, way beyond 
what he is obliged to do. Ruth goes home after one day's harvest with roughly 22 kgs of barley grain. Okay, that's enough for two people to eat for two to four weeks. Okay, and that's just after one day's abundance. That's after just one day of faith stepping out into the field and trusting that God would be kind. One day, and she goes back home with 22 kgs of barley. But Boaz doesn't just say that you can be in my field for one day and then you need to scram. He does not just say that. He says that Ruth is welcome to come back day after day after day and that she would be cared for and provided for and made welcome. Not just that I'll care for you, but that you're actually welcome in my field. And as a foreigner, I can, I can only imagine in a hostile world what that would feel like. Yeah? I think that we all are potentially... We are with families or friends at some point uh, in our lives or even now, we have experienced like relational tension where you don't feel welcome in that person's presence. Or maybe flip it around. Maybe somebody's not welcome in yours. Is that okay? What we can see from the heart of God is that as followers of Jesus, as Nick led us in worship this morning, as, as his followers... All should be welcome in our presence. As we are welcome in his. As Jesus welcomes us and our hearts overflow, as Boaz was, in gratitude to what God is doing. And so, um, really quickly, uh, I think it's really important to take note of Naomi's response. Because we've talked a little bit about how Naomi's bitter, right? And she is. She doesn't really want to be back in the promised land. But at the same time, she's on her own journey with God. And God is still caring for her in his own way. Even though she doesn't want to be there, she now can eat. He's good. Even though she was disobedient, he was faithful. It's a beautiful picture that we've got here. And so in verse 22, Naomi's response to this offer of being able to come back to the same field day after day after day is this, good I loved your emphasis, Mahalia, this morning when you read this. Good, Naomi explained. Do as he said, my daughter. Stay with this young woman right through the whole harvest. You might be harassed in other fields, but you will be safe with him. How beautiful are those words. And I think Naomi knew better than anyone else in this story and what it looked like to look over the fence and see greener fields. That is literally why she left the promised land at the beginning of the story, she had seen greener fields and she went after them. She saw security and significance elsewhere and she went after it. She knew better than anyone what it's like to look over the fence and go, I like what you got, I might come on over. She probably didn't say anything like that because that was weird. <laughs> but Naomi left full and returned home empty. And now we hear her speaking to Ruth from that place, empty, encouraging her. Stay in that field. Stay in that field. Nothing can compare to God's green pastures. Nothing. Nothing can compare to being under his care. Nothing. Nothing can compare to experiencing his abundance and goodness. Nothing. Even if you think you are in a land of famine, Stepping out of the promised land will never satisfy. Stepping out of that intimacy with Jesus will never satisfy in, compar in comparison to being in an intimate relationship with Jesus. Nothing can compare to that. C.S. Lewis, of course. Had, not, had something similar to say in his book, The Weight of Glory, and I think that we've even read this quote once this year already, talking about this idea of chasing other things, going after other things. C.S. Lewis writes this, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that the Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. 
I feel your sins, Lord. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot understand what it's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. And so where I want to land this morning is this idea that both Naomi and Ruth are empty, as in they've got to this place where they have nothing. And that one's forced to recognize that, and I think the other, uh, Naomi is forced to recognize it. Ruth willingly recognizes it, and as a result, steps out in faith, right? She positions herself for blessing like Kiko. But I think that this day and age, we have, a, we have a bit of a funny relationship when things get tough. And I'm not saying because we should like be, yay, things are getting tough kind of thing. Yay for hard circumstances. 2020 has been enough for us all, I'm sure, in, in, in our own ways. But what I am coming to realize in my walk with Jesus, in my relationship with Jesus, is that when I get to the point of recognizing my emptiness, then there is space for God's abundance. Does that make sense? When I, when I get to that place when I can recognize my emptiness, then there is space for God's abundance. And again, it's not anything that I have done or haven't done. It's all about His goodness and His blessing. His provision, his kindness, his welcoming of me as a foreigner into his kingdom of the son he dearly loves. And so this morning you might be finding yourselves in somewhat of like a famine-esque space where either you like, Jesus, I just don't know where you are. I don't even know if you're a thing anymore. Are you, are you real? We haven't talked for ages. I can't feel you. I can't sense you. Can I, can I encourage you, just like Naomi encouraged Ruth, stay in that field. Stay in that field. Lean in. Take a step of faith. Jesus will meet you. He is good. And he longs for us to draw nearer and deeper to him. But there is a, there is a kind of like an undoing where we've got to let go of some stuff, recognizing our emptiness and the things we chase after so that we can experience that abundance. And they can be bad things and they can be good things that we need to let go of, that we need to put down, like Nick was talking about this morning, to follow him, to take that step of faith and to experience his life, his goodness, his abundance. And so this morning I want us to ask ourselves this question. What are the things I am chasing after for security or significance in my life instead of pursuing God and finding my security and significance in Him? It's a long question. I get it. It's up on the screen in case you weren't able to follow. What are the things I'm chasing after for security or significance in my life instead of pursuing God and finding my security and significance in Him? Please, please, firstly, don't mistake what I am saying for um, it doesn't matter about like whether you're in a hard place or not. It doesn't matter if you're struggling financially or not. It doesn't matter all those kind of things because what we do see is also a very practical thing of God setting up a system so that those who could not care for themselves would be cared for. And I believe that the church needs to continue that in this day and age where we love well, where we welcome the foreigner, where we care for those who cannot care for themselves, where the poor and the widowed have a home. But most importantly, we need to recognize that it's not us doing that. It's us pointing to Jesus and saying, it's his abundance that, ultimate, that you need ultimately. Whilst we practically help in whatever way we can. So please don't mistake what I'm saying for, oh, it doesn't matter if things are hard, just lean harder into Jesus. No. God cares greatly about what you are going through and experiencing. But the answer is not merely physical things. The answer is not matter. It's not possessions, finances, or wealth. It's not health. 
the answer is Jesus. And as we lean into him, we all experience his life because he's good like that. So we're going to move into a time of, um, of worship and communion together in response to God's goodness and abundance. And so just want to um, invite Nick up, and we're going to, we're going to sing some songs. And um, I, wanted to, um, to, sorry, I want to lead us into communion with this thought here, that God does not begrudgingly invite us into his field to pick up the scraps. Okay, He does not begrudgingly invite us into his field to pick up the scraps. He invites us to his table to feast with him. Just like Boaz didn't just let Ruth pick up the bits and pieces and the extra that he left behind, but he said, no, Ruth, come and eat with me and gave her extra that she could go home with. So too this morning... We do this with Jesus. As we come to him, as we come to his table, as we feast, as we take these things in remembrance of the significant, uh, life-altering, like world-changing sacrifice that he made for our behalf, and then we can uh, receive from him, position ourselves for blessing, and then we go out into this world with more, like, more than we came for, just like Ruth did. And she could give it to Naomi, who hadn't probably eaten that day. And so we come to the table because we go, Jesus, we need you. We really need you. 2020 needs you. It's been a crazy year. And we receive and we position ourselves for blessing. so that the foreigner is welcome and that the needy are cared for, so that those who we cross paths with experience some form of the kingdom of God, so that we can give out of what God has so freely given us. And that's why we come to the table. And so I'm going to pray a blessing over this. And then we're going to sing a song, and then Nick's going to invite us up to, to take communion together. But this morning, is there something you need to put down? Is there something that you've been chasing that provides or promises significance and security, but in the end is only distracting you from your walk with Jesus? If there is, maybe this is the time to put it down and say, all right, Jesus, I'm coming after you. Let's pray. Lord, we give you thanks for your sacrifice. We thank you that just as Boaz was to Ruth, that family redeemer, you are, you are that to us. Will you welcome us to your table to feast and to not just pick up the scraps? You invite us to come to your cup to drink deep, your love poured out for us. You invite us to your loaf and you say, grab a handful because <laughs> I'm not running out anytime soon. Lord, you have grace upon grace upon grace. Like, just like favored us and we're just so thankful for the grace that you've poured out into our lives. Help us to be better like, at receiving it so that we may live in your kingdom's flow and this world forever changed because of what you are doing deep within us. Thank you, King Jesus, our family redeemer. Amen.